Thanks for joining us for this episode of Coffee with Closers, where business leaders share insights on how to build businesses from the ground up and best practices for innovating in their industry. Hey, Jordan, I'm super excited to have you join me for this episode of Coffee with Closers. Thanks for having me, Sam. I appreciate it. Most certainly. Well, we kind of meet on a very unique and interesting conversation we had over, I think it was on LinkedIn. And I said, hey, you would make a great guest on our show. That's how this conversation all got started. Come to find out you have an extensive experience in the tech and SaaS plays. You've been a senior leader. You've been a co-founder of a couple of companies. And now you started this venture firm as well. So can you talk to our audience a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey and, and give an over, uh, overview of where you've been in your career? Yeah, happy to. I came out of undergrad 20 years or so ago, dating myself, but I knew at that point I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, but didn't feel like I had you know, a great idea or, or necessarily know how, um, which was probably correct. I don't think I had either at that point. Uh, but I did get on board with a, a really fast growing uh, dynamic company called Angie's List down in Indianapolis. So I was the probably 40th employee, reported to Angie, and we kind of built up the digital marketing stuff in the you know very early days of SEO, SEM, things like that. So just a great experience when I left, there was over a thousand employees and that was three years later. Um, so just phenomenal growth and they'd raised about 80 million. I left only because I wanted to go to business school. So I got accepted to Kellogg up here in Chicago. Um, did that for a couple of years, uh, went to an agency, did that for a few years and then got the itch again to do something entrepreneurial. And so there was a, you know, it was 2010 and there was a lot of accelerators that were, were being founded. And one here in Chicago was called Accelerate Labs which later merged with Techstars. So, so now it's just known as Techstars. Uh, but what I went through, it was called Accelerate Labs and we started a business called Buzz Referrals, later became Buzz Digital and it was basically a referral SaaS platform. So if you wanted a referral program, it just kind of needed something fairly simple with your logo and a WYSIWYG interface. We could do that and we would then tap in with different credit cards or your own promo codes or things like that. So fun business, um, didn't scale huge, but we sold in 2014. And at that point I said, you know, do I want to do something entrepreneurial again and kind of, uh, continue the journey or um, do I want to try something in a larger organization? And I got connected with a company called Pubmatic, which most people have not heard of, but if you look at an ad on your phone or an ad on the internet and it's tailored to you, it's called programmatic advertising. There's a good chance, probably about a one in eight chance that Pubmatic served that ad based off, off your profile. So I moved out east and managed their sales team, which was out of New York. We had some other offices around the world, but also in the United States. And just right place, right time. I like to think we did some things right too, but they IPO'd in 2020. And that brings me up to Zeal, where my partner, who I actually met at Angie's List 20 years ago, we'd always said, if we can do something where the stars align, we should. And they finally did. And so yeah, but it uh, took me up to last week when I reached out to you to buy your business and you told me no. <laughs> so it's crazy. Some of the exits that you've had, or at least the companies that you're a part of, I mean, Angie's, who would have thought a directory listings would, I think they were sold for $2.4 billion, right? It was some crazy multiple. Yeah. Yeah. They, they kind of IPO'd a portion. So if you extrapolate to the value, yeah, it, was a, it was a big number. And so yeah, there's a lot of good and a lot of bad that comes from that kind of scale. You're just, you're not going to be able to preserve a company culture perfectly and you're going to break some eggs making the omelet, but I think it turned out well. Is that the largest company from Indiana to be born or were there other, other tech companies that came out of Indiana that you probably are? It, it depends how you measure things. Um, they are not the biggest as far as, you know, funding raised. And I don't think they're the biggest as far as exits. I mean, like exact targets sold to Salesforce. That was a big. Yeah, that's true. I forgot exit. about that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's up there. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't think of Indiana being like a, a tech hub. Yeah, Exact Target actually. Exact Target was at one point our customer as well because they acquired one of our clients. I was got iGo Digital. I don't know if you ever heard of iGo Digital, which is sure. like a product recommendation engine. So that was a client of ours, and then iGo Digital was acquired by Exact Target. So through that acquisition, for a time period, we had Exact Target, and then when Exact Target got acquired, Salesforce through that relationship became a customer as well. So. It's a crazy world out there in the tech and SaaS space. Then you yeah. said you went on for the IPO, and were you where you had some sort of equity in the company when you when that other IPO happened? I did, yeah, I did options. That's awesome to hear. So now here we are. You have this uh, this new venture you're starting. What are some lessons you've learned in the process? Obviously, you worked in fast growing companies that go from thirty to thousand employees in a matter of three years. So you must have learned a whole lot of stuff. Uh, what are some lessons you've learned in the process of being in those fast growing companies? Yeah, I guess I kind of already alluded to one, which is when you have that kind of hyper growth, there's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of challenges. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I joke in the ad tech world that we've been in and even e-commerce, my partner, Randy Stockland, he founded an e-commerce company uh, that he sold a couple of years ago. I think it experiences some similar dynamics. If you look on Glassdoor, at just the ad tech industry, I, I think on average, they probably have some of the lowest ratings. And it's not an indictment of any of those companies. It's just really hard to maintain a culture where you've got that kind of boom and bust and you've got just a lot of inherent turnover. So that's always a battle is how do you retain good people? And I think it's a battle for any company, but it's particularly a battle in the digital world, I think. Yeah. So then obviously you're saying free lunches and unlimited vacation and whatever, like massage and uh, yoga classes isn't sufficient to keep the company culture going? <laughs> that helps. I, I don't think I've ever worked at a company that didn't have ping pong tables. And I don't think I've ever played ping pong once on any of them. So yeah, per- perks are great. But at the end of the day, I think there's a lot more meaningful things that people make their, their career choices on. How did you do things differently when you started your own, knowing some of the pitfalls of those fast growing companies? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing is Randy and I decided at this point in our life, we're in our 40s, we know a ton about data and tech and digital marketing, but we didn't necessarily want to take a a moonshot, like a VC-funded startup type of thing. We just got really excited about service businesses that grow maybe slowly, but steadily, but have great people and offer a really valuable service. The companies really those that might have B2B SaaS or B2B tech as a customer, but not the SaaS or tech themselves. Mm -hmm. And then obviously you've had a lot of your experience come from the SaaS world, but then you started this company called Zeal, which is looking out to go acquire a service company. So how did you went away from the desire to be in the SaaS world to go work with service companies? Because those are not the ones that actually typically grows very fast. It's not scalable. And probably the multiples, if you decide to sell them, isn't as much as you would, you would get with a SaaS company. Yeah, I think the reason, again, part of it is a stage of our life, but part of it's also just having seen the the opportunities and challenges in that kind of high growth environment. And for me and Randy, both business is all about people. Like that's what gets us excited. We just got tons of personal stories from people on our teams that life have been improved. Their uh, client stories where clients' lives have been improved. And from our point of view, if, if you're not treating people well and also having fun with them, like what's the point? And so we got excited about smaller businesses. I mean, ones that might sponsor a little league team and you know, be really involved in communities, be involved in their people and really vested and hopefully be around in 20 years. And so that's where we originally focused and it was industry agnostic. Since then, we've kind of honed in on the industries we know that are tangential to those high growth areas, still services. And so talk to us a little bit about how do you leverage acquisition as a growth strategy for a company? 
Yeah. So I haven't done much M&A in my career proper. I've, I've mm -hmm. done real estate stuff sort of on the side. Randy acquired about 10 companies as part mm -hmm. of um, his e-commerce portfolio. So we have some experience in it. But in general, I think M&A is, is not always an area that people think of as they think of growth. You know, organic growth is sort of the low-hanging fruit. But buying EBITDA or earnings is a totally viable strategy, especially in a fragmented market. So I, I think for a lot of businesses, that's a strategy worth worth looking at, worth worth pursuing if it maps to your skill set. So if you know if you're great on the top line, but not great at maybe operations and scaling an organization, MA is tough. But if you're really good at that scaling portion, then I think MA is something that people should look at and then it has to be matched to kind of your risk profile and and ambitions. Yeah, but then if you're in the service industry and if it's not like a residual revenue model. You can acquire a service company that's more project-based and you're risking your, you know, you're saying, hey, I'm going to buy this company that does about $3 million in annual sales, but ERP system integration, every job they've done is in a custom project. You have no guarantee once you buy, you're going to have that same revenue or the same amount of projects coming in the door. So how do you then protect yourself from, you know, making such a mistake? Yeah, this, I mean, this goes a little bit into like the overall question of how much is a company worth mm -hmm. and what are those levers that make one worth more or worth less. And I think in general, project base versus recurring revenue is just going to demand a lower multiple. Mm -hmm. um, and if you take it to the extreme, if you take it to like a, call it a window installation company, right? That's, you do that once every 20 to 40 years. And those companies tend to be really good at lead gen and marketing. But if those lead gen engines stop today, like, what is there? Every customer comes once for the most part, at least on the residential side. And so you'll see that reflected in the multiples. So if someone buys that kind of company, they're probably buying the employees, some vendor relationships and customer database to some extent, but largely customers that won't need them for a while. The higher the recurring element, the better the multiple. And then other factors too go into that. So what is the typical multiple you've seen in the service industry, especially if you're buying a company that has recurring revenue? Obviously a loaded question, take it with a great salt. Mm -hmm. But I think in general, historically, digital agencies, for instance, have been kind of in the three to five X EBITDA multiple. In this environment, we're seeing that go up a little bit because I just think every asset class is, is kind of frothy right now, um, crypto aside maybe. And we're seeing more four to six, I'd say. And, and that delta is gonna depend on things like the recurring revenue, how long clients have been around, is the owner staying, is, is he or she not? But then it goes up from there. So some businesses that are really sticky, like managed IT, you know, same customers year over year, almost has some SaaS-like components that might be more like a six to eight or even nine. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and especially if, uh, if it's, like you said, and his SaaS-like model with the cost of operation is so much cheaper than really a service-heavy company. It could be recurring, but it's a lot of human capital to service that, then that I'm assuming would affect it as well. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously, you know, we talked a little bit about the acquisition as a growth strategy, but most businesses don't know that, you know, they think they have to go borrow the money from bank, but there's other ways of getting capital to, to be able to do, you know, expansion through acquisition. So what are some ways that business owners need to consider raising the money to go to expand through acquisition? Yeah. I mean, assuming that there's not a lot of assets to the business. So if we're talking about a service-based business where it's going to be, um, Largely, your asset walks out the door every evening and comes back in the morning. For those scenarios, I mean, I think the SBA 7A program is one that everybody should look at. It tops out at a certain level, but it's just a very friendly program for getting debt at a really attractive price. Now, with that, I, I mentioned risk profile, so it's typically going to be a personal guarantee. You could be your business, could be your house, but you know, if stuff really went wrong, that's what people have to think about. And so, if that's not comfortable. 
The other area to think about is um, outside capital. So that could be people like Zeal. There's a really big community that has gone outside of just private equity. A lot of private equity guys that have left and started their own things called independent sponsors. Those types are of interest. Um, but in general, though, I just think talking to competitors and kind of being friendly with your competition can open up a lot of those M&A opportunities. And then usually from your experience, like what kind of structures have worked really well, especially you mentioned whether the owner stays on would be one consideration, but what are some other ways that you can have where you don't have to pay up the whole, let's say three times the, the multiple, right? You mentioned, but there are other creative ways to actually make the acquisition, but you paid over a certain number of years or whatnot, right? What are some creative ways that you've seen people do acquisition that way yeah so this kind of depends on the goals you know do you want to stay do you want to not like our model is fairly flexible but like our ideal scenario is somebody that's taken a company to maybe a a one or two million dollar EBITDA level maybe maybe north of that and it's a great business but they they've kind of hit a little bit of a ceiling or just know that they need some help to get the next level sometimes it's people that are growing but instead of 3x they want to figure out how they can do 10x that's Zeal's ideal model is they want to take some chips off the table and we help them grow and get to that next level. Mm-hmm. That said, some people just want to do something else or play golf. So really kind of your, your motivations matter a lot. But in general, one of the things that I think cautionary tale, but also just something that, that can work is the concept of an earnout. So in these businesses, a lot of times there's customer concentration. You might have three or four clients that represent 50% or more of your revenue. In those situations, a lot of times you'll see a buyer ask for an earnout where they get half up front and maybe the 25% and the following 25% is paid over the next two years on the condition that none of those clients leave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that means they're not risking the full payout, a payment, right? Right up front. Because if those clients, like I was saying earlier, especially the project-based businesses, things like that, most clients may or may not come back if the owner spe- steps away or whoever is the core person within that company is stepping away from that organization. Right. And, and I say a cautionary tale, like we, um, Randy had an earnout, you know, when he sold his company, I think it went fine, but sometimes they don't. And it can make some really weird incentives. Uh, and it can also, it can also create the illusion that you're getting a higher multiple than you are. You know, we'll pay 10x, but you have to hit this growth goal. And if you don't, now it's a 6x. So it's just something to watch out for as well. Understood. So obviously, depending on who you listen to, you hear all kinds of stories about where we are as a country and where the economy is headed. But obviously, economic downturn could be a very appropriate time to start looking for acquisition strategies. Are there any advice that you might have for someone who's, you know, who may not have thought about acquisition as an expansion strategy, how they could probably keep their eyes open for opportunities, like you said, talking to competitors or whatnot? Like, what what are some recommendations you have for someone who can take advantage of it because they have a very good, strong, healthy company? that they can leverage that as an asset to expand. Yeah, I mean, you touched on first the economy, which I I do think we're probably going to be in a a correction here at some point. And so having creditworthy clients that ideally have been been with you for some time um, certainly helps on a sale price. And the other part of your question is just how to find deals. Maybe I'm not the best guy to ask. We haven't actually acquired a company (laughs) yet. We're only five, six months in, but it's tough. It takes a long time. Even when you get to an LOI or letter of intent, only 30% of those uh, typically close. So there's all kinds of reasons a deal could go south. So uh, what I'm doing today is meeting you, and uh, which has been great getting to know you, just talking to as many people as possible. And whether that's competitors or investors or strategics, uh, the more people you talk to, I think generally the better. Yeah. And I'm just curious also, like, you know, obviously you can't just start looking for uh, a deal right when the economy is going down, but you have to have the eye, like you said, you have to have your eyes open 
for such opportunities seems like, right? Like you said, you have to be talking to your competitors, which oftentimes we tend to avoid, but those are the kind of companies that you probably are ripe for acquisition sometimes. Yeah, I think if you're a million dollar EBITDA or less company 10 years ago before search funds and independent sponsors and guys like Zeal came around and that became a more efficient market, like selling to your competition was pretty much the exit if your kids didn't want to take the business over. So um, yeah, I think it's still just as viable. Mm -hmm. So how does one prepare for an exit? Obviously, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, maybe acquisition as a strategy for growth or whatnot, but how do you prepare for an exit, especially if you're in the service industry? Yeah, I um, don't want to beat a dead horse, but I think your own personal goals are just so important and there's some level of self-reflection that should probably happen. So um, do, you, do you want to remain involved in the business? Do you not? Do you want to remain involved? Do you want to take a big liquidity event now and then have a smaller piece later or vice versa? But once those are, are figured out and that'll inform some things, I just think the most important things are keep your customers. Like that's, that's probably even more important than getting new customers. They'll both obviously help. Keep your most important employees. That's going to be crucial to any buyer. And then uh, get your finances in order. It's it's amazing how often we see financial statements that just something doesn't seem quite right. Uh, they're just not very robust. So I think the better you know all the levers and KPIs of your own business and the better your accounting's in order, the, the better outcome. So obviously we talked a little bit about, you know, the acquisition as a strategy for expansion. You know, what what are some ways that you can prepare for an exit as a business owner? One of the things I alluded to earlier is just uh, figuring out your own goals and doing some self-reflection. You know, do you want to continue running this business? Do you have the desire to really grow it, which obviously most uh, sellers want? Or do you want to do something else? And either one is fine. That's definitely not a question you want to say what you think the seller or the, uh, the buyer wants. But once you come to that conclusion, there's some pretty basic things. I mean, keeping your, your current customers, retention is super important and arguably more important than signing up new customers is keeping them. And then uh, keeping employees particularly in this environment, I think is also um, critical. And then finally, just making sure your your finances are in good order. I mean, it's tough in every business I've had. There's always some, some doesn't foot at the end of the month or whatever, but I mean more, you know, making sure you can articulate your strategy and why the numbers are what they are, including did you pay yourself a big retained earnings payout last year? Maybe don't do that right before you're about to sell, but things like that, you just want to have an order. Yeah. And then how about like, I've noticed, I mean, very, very successful, obviously being in the marketing space, met with a lot of business leaders, companies that are like $25 million. I've even seen multiple, you know, uh, eight figure uh, companies that actually have no CRM, no marketing automation technology, no way to pinpoint who their top customers are. All they have is an ERP system to show like total bill of good, whatever you want to call it, invoices. So how do you go into an organization like that and be confidently say, these guys got their numbers figured out? Or does those kind of opportunities makes, makes the sale a lot complicated, a lot more complicated? Yeah, that's an interesting question because every business has warts. And some question is, is this a wart that's actually an opportunity or is this something that's actually a deal breaker? I mean, for Randy and me, like the, the issue you just raised is by no means a deal breaker because we love implementing CRMs and data and tech and geeky stuff like that. So if a company looks healthy, despite maybe not doing those things, and we see that as an opportunity. Now, when I speak of financials, I mean more like, you know, you can't explain why the ad backs for the EBITDA, you know, are as high as they are. And maybe there's, you know, weird stuff like that, uh, more so than like systems and platforms. Mm -hmm. And then also, what, you know, especially when you're talking about, you know, like you, you talk a lot about the EBITDA, right? But if it's a service company and it's probably mostly their revenues coming from hours traded for dollars. So do you also look at the, the billable rate versus the actual profitability of those hours billed 
is where any of those things actually comes into pay because the other expenses are going to be on on top of that right because you're operating expenses and all of those things that come on top so how much would, because you might be able to say well these guys are they don't know how to negotiate contracts they're more paying way too much to software companies they're also paying a big hefty fee to their rent all of those things could be opportunity for you to go and reduce the expenses but what if you actually see like the actual billable rate is really good but they just don't know how to make money in the after the fact the people has been really helpful to randy and i a guy named brad moorhead here in town just a similar thing that had a phrase i love it was is it rusty or is it dusty you know if it fixes it and it's trash it's, mm-hmm. it's rusty that's a problem that's <laughs> that's gears grinding and you can't if it's dusty you dust it off and and it looks better after you polished it so most of the things you raised are probably post loi kind of when you get into the due diligence but in general people will look at margins if your margin's really high, that's probably not good. It means you haven't invested in people and other things. And sometimes it looks like you're positioning yourself for a sale and inflated it. If it's really low, though, that's not good either. So, yeah, is it rusty or is it dusty? What is a healthy margin a service company should be aiming for, whether you're planning to sell or not? Kind of case specific, but I'd say lower than 20 is probably not great and higher than 50 is probably not great. Okay, so you want to be in that 30 to, to 45 range and then that's a healthy one and then obviously you know you touched on a lot of these things in, in terms of acquisition you know what are some misconceptions that you've seen when it comes to to selling a company that you've seen from the owners from an owner's perspective there's a couple things that happen you know when you sell your house and you talk to a realtor and you say you know you have a five hundred thousand dollar house and you say it's you think it's worth eight hundred thousand a lot of realtors will say yeah yeah <laughs> let's at that and see what happens i think same dynamic here some business brokers or intermediaries will will tell people whatever they, they want. And so that added to the fact that everybody knows someone who got a 15X on their business and they get a number in their head. That's probably the biggest thing is that people have a number in their head and it may or may not be accurate. I'd say in general too, you know, some people sell business without a broker, some people do, and probably similar to selling a house, it's going to be more legwork and you know, brokers add a lot of value, but pick the broker very carefully. They're not all equal and, you know, it's a wide array, but um, super important role, you know, helping you coach you on the talking points and getting your data room in order. Let's say a referral based intermediary is probably the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the two that jump out at me. But the, the, the fact of the matter is in the real estate role, you can at least go see the, the prior sales history. You can see how much the houses in the neighborhood was sold for and you can kind of try to compare. But most business exits are private, right? You don't have those metrics publicly available. So I'm assuming if you work with a broker, then they may have at least some sort of a going rate of what's the realistic you know, expectation should be. And then they can guide you as well, I'm assuming. Yeah, a good broker will do that. And obviously they want to get a deal done. And it's not quite like a house where you're going to get showings and things without <laughs> the broker doing a lot of work. A broker has to do a lot of work on a deal. Uh, so they are incentivized to give you at least a somewhat accurate number. Yeah. And I mean, I, I think they make a percentage of the sale anyway, so they're not going to undercut the value of the company just to make a sale either, right? They're just going to always right. try to find value for you as the seller as well. So let's talk a little bit about you, because obviously you've been in the service industry, you've been in the SaaS industry, you've been in the sales role, you've been a founder. I mean, there's a lot of things that you've accomplished. Of all the things that you've accomplished in your life, what's the one thing you're super proud of? It's probably not business related, you know, I mean, <laughs> my family's first and foremost, I'm just really proud of my family, proud of my wife. She runs the school system for Holyoke, Massachusetts uh, as a chief strategy officer. And every day, any job I've had when she's told me what she did that day, just <laughs> pales in comparison. So those are the, the people I'm most proud of on a professional sense, though. I think what we did at Pubmatic, uh, growing the top line like we did and really penetrating agencies and advertisers, like that was, that was certainly a moment to be proud of professionally. 
Awesome. Obviously, you've been in the sales leader role. You probably hear a lot about time blocking and things like that. What are some of your productivity hacks that you've done to get things done or to stay focused? Let me give a couple of shout outs. So as a sales guy, I like follow up is super, super important. And one of the tools that I love and it's free is called follow up then. So followupben.com, you basically BCC anything you want, 8 a.m. at followupben.com or tomorrow at followupben.com. And I get that email back like a boomerang, you know, at that time that I put. So instead of setting up like a calendar reminder or something like that in the CRM system, I just BCC almost every email I spent, I sent to clients or perspectives and it comes back and reminds me. So that is an awesome hack that I've loved. Other hacks I've really geeked out over the last couple of years, certainly during the pandemic environment on how we manage our time and you know how you keep energy. And so for me, not looking at my phone until you know, I, at least a couple hours after being awake and then also carving out little short increments to do work and then kind of evaluate what I've done. It has been really helpful for me not to you know just get sucked into email or, or what it might be. Expand on that because I know I've heard people talking about blocking hours to, to get certain things done, but I'm also, like you said, you know, I've also heard people said, you know, if you're going to make time, something like that. I've heard some phraseology people used. I think it was like meet time, me time, make time. So it's like me time is like every, like you have a Tuesdays and Wednesdays. I just do between two and four o'clock all meetings. And then in the morning, you know, between seven and eight is all my me time, but personal reflection and building yourself or whatever all those things are and then make time is like hey these are my productivity focused on revenue generation or whatever those things are so when you talk about like you know do a little bit of work reflection is your day so fragmented that you have a lot of calls fragmented across the day and that you have to get, just kind of find productive time in between or you intentionally just take a break after everything that you do just reflect what did i do was it valuable how can i improve is that, is that kind of the practice that you're talking about Maybe somewhere between those. I mean, first of all, the, the first thing you said sounds awesome. If I could, yeah. if I could compartmentalize my day like that, that'd be amazing. But it, it's just too hectic. Especially, I, I'm talking to a lot of business owners and their schedules first. First, so I work into their schedule. So yeah, calls and things happen all, all at different times. But what I mean is more sitting down, not looking at anything, and just thinking: What are the three most important things to do today? And I, I usually write them on this this whiteboard. So that's sitting in the background all day, and then I, I just work in sprints. So an hour on that first thing and then maybe have some calls and then an hour and it's actually usually 30 minute sprints that's awesome well if you had to do it all over again what would you do differently about how your career has evolved the one thing i would have done differently is when i came out of undergrad you know i, I just dropped who knows how much on school and i think it's probably not unique to me but you feel a lot of pressure to go out there and do something and when you're 22, like that, that period, 22 to 28, like that is a unique time period where you have total freedom. So I probably would have taken myself less seriously at that time. And uh, you know, I don't know if I'll give my kids this advice because everybody wants their kid to go get a good job at Angie's List or whatever, but I'm really into music, trying to make a go at it in music or something like that, or just travel. Now that I have three kids and a mortgage and all that, might've done that early and who knows what would have come from that, but I'm happy where, where things ended up. Yeah, knowing what you know today, what, what advice would you give your younger self? Uh, just be humble, be hungry, and be kind. Mm -hmm. Coming from, I think it's Patrick Lynch, you only said that. <laughs> humble, <laughs> hungry, and smart. It's not original. <laughs> yeah, it's probably bastardization of someone smarter, but that's what I think of. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you joining me on this show. Thank you so much for your time. This episode of Coffee with Closers is brought to you by One IMS a leading digital marketing agency helping businesses win new customers. To request a free marketing ROI audit, please visit oneims.com. 
If you enjoyed this video, please share it. To make sure you never miss an episode, please subscribe.